Medic 43, District 1, Engine 51, Response, Cardiac Arrest. Hello, everybody. Welcome again to another edition of the MCHD Paramedic Podcast. This is Dr. Casey Patrick, and today we're lucky to have a special guest from literally across the globe. We're going to be joined by Joe Cuthbertson, a critical care paramedic in Australia, and we're going to discuss their use at St. John Ambulance Service of whole blood in the field. And this is one of the hottest, if not the hottest topic in EMS right now is uh, pre-hospital administration of whole blood for hemorrhagic shock. And uh, the retrospective literature is in. We're all anxiously awaiting some, some prospective uh, data here. But I wanted to bring uh, Joe on because his service has quite a bit of experience uh, administering whole blood in the field. And before we get into the the details, Joe, uh, let's start off by letting you introduce yourself, tell the listeners about your service, where in Australia you're located, and what population uh, area that you serve. Thanks, Casey, uh, and, and great to be speaking to you again. We, we met uh, at a Wadham podcast not so long ago and, and uh, built up a bit of a relationship there. And for, for the listeners, uh, I've reached out to Casey a couple of times just throughout uh, the COVID-19 pa- pandemic to, to share knowledge, and it's really from my perspective, reflective uh, of how how health is a global community, and it, it's really it's really enjoyable to be be sharing knowledge and information and learning from each other. So yeah, look from from my perspective, uh, and sitting over here in, in Western Australia, we we sit on a landmass of around two and a half million square kilometres, which sort of comes in at just shy of a, a million square miles. We've got around just short, just under three million inhabitants spread out around there. Now, 90% of, or more than 90% live in the southwest corner of the state. So we've got some population density down in the corner, uh, but that means the, the remainder of the population is quite sparsely distributed around the rest of the state, which cre- creates challenges for us, particularly around patient retrieval uh, access uh, and providing care and getting them back to tertiary care because of all of the tertiary hospitals sit in that southwest corner. So from from our perspective, uh, particularly in the, in the HEM service where we're um, providing uh, packed red blood cells out in the field, it's a really important skill set for us because out, out in those rural areas, we've, we've got um, lack of resources because of that sparse distribution of people and services. So we need to take the care to them out in the field. But um, St. John Ambulance has been around for just under 100 years, providing the ambulance service for the state of Western Australia. We've got uh, a few thousand staff uh, distributed in different ambulance depots across the state uh, and our HIM service that uh, support both permanent and volunteer staff members. So it's great to be chatting with you this evening, Casey. Thanks, Joe. So that that's a, a quite the contrast for the uh, U.S. listeners out there, especially the local folks here. You know, it, we we sometimes complain. Uh, complain's probably not the right word, but you know, we serve about a thousand square miles for reference sake um, here at Montgomery County Hospital District, and you know, getting around our hundred or thousand square miles to educate and talk with medics and you know really just 
have good quality FaceTime can be difficult. So I guess from a perspective relative standpoint, when you're dealing with a thousand square miles versus a million square miles, I probably should should stop complaining and uh, be thankful that I don't have uh, that size landmass to deal with. So realistically, you know, the the need to get whole blood out to those people, especially in the in the northern part of your service area where that population is so sparse and those transport times are so long, um, that a unique situation that really lends itself uh, to try to push the care to the field like y'all have been doing. So on the subject of whole blood, how long have you been administering it in the field? And uh, can you can you talk to the listeners about some of the roadblocks that the service uh, sort of worked through? And Sure. Yeah, yeah. So we've been uh, just over two years now, or yeah, well over two years now, uh, been delivering this capability out into the field. So the HEM service over here is single clinician staff, so so one critical care paramedic. There's an additional two staff as part of the, the crew mix, a pilot and an air crewman. The, the air crewman has some medical assist type training to be able to support the critical care paramedic in the field. Oh, sorry about that. That's my dog in the background. Uh, but uh, the, uh, the challenges we faced in introduction, I, I can't say we faced too many challenge well too many barriers in introduction we, we're well supported here by the state trauma unit uh, and the, the medical director of the state trauma unit he's been a, a big supporter of um, pre-hospital care and really sees the need uh, for, for this type of intervention out in the field so uh, like like places in the states and no doubt uh, areas that uh, within your jurisdiction you see motor vehicle accidents and the trauma related to that in in our situation particularly in rural areas or, or and that urban rural interface we have small country roads uh, with high speeds and, and the mix of those in certain situations doesn't end up with a, a good result they're quite a distance from uh, trauma care so we need to be able to provide some sort of stabilization particularly in those high level trauma incidents to be able to get them back uh, in the best possible manner to trauma surgeons to be able to um, facilitate some care. So that, that was the real driver. I think uh, having that medical leadership to be able to establish and support the service and then a, a really robust support system in terms of blood management from uh, organisations here in Western Australia. So I'm sure many yourself and many of your listeners are aware just how precious whole blood is. Uh, and really, with that patient first lens in mind, it's absolutely imperative that uh, the cold chain process is preserved so that there's no wastage. There's really, uh, our lens is that um, if we're going to use this, then it's used the right time every time so that uh, those who, who need this intervention can receive it uh, and there's not inadvertent um, wastage of what is a very precious product. You hit on several points I want to dive deeper into. You know, realistically, you probably remove the most important roadblock and one of the ones that, you know, we deal with frequently here in the U.S., and that is, you know, the, the fragmented and siloed nature of healthcare. You know, you had, you said it right off the bat, you had cooperation with your trauma surgeons and your trauma service, and that is one of the keys to getting any pre-hospital new intervention 
off the ground, and that is to make sure that all your stakeholders are involved and supportive and lend their expertise. And so uh, that kudos for, for getting that uh, taken care of at the start. Sometimes here in the States that can be a bit difficult because the ambulance system separate from the hospital system, separate from multiple hospital systems in their area, and it can become you know multiple players in a room with differing goals and objectives. So sometimes it can be a challenge to get everyone on the same page. But, you know, for the listeners out there, it's always key, whether we're talking about systems of care for stroke, whether we're talking about whole blood, whether we're talking about ECMO and resuscitation centers, having all the stakeholders from the initial 911 call to, you know, really patient discharge to home on the same page is absolutely vital. But back back to uh, where you left off, you know, you talked about waste and I want to get to waste in a second, but before we get to waste, uh, let's talk about the indications for administration and specifically your protocol and how you target getting the right patients whole blood in the field. How have you found the most accurate and the best way to do that? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, look up, I'll talk through the, um, the protocol itself, but, uh, uh, if, if you're interested, I, I can send you the link to our protocols. It's, um, they're accessible online and, and more than happy for, for people or organizations to tap into that. And, and equally, if they think, see, see them and, and think of ways that we can improve, um, or have suggestions and be happy to hear that too. But to get, to get to the point, the indications that, that we've listed for administration, of um, whole blood is patients that are symptomatic of reduced oxygen carrying capacity secondary to exannuation. So kept it really simple and straight to the point. We we want to provide blood where, where people have lost blood and they're deteriorating as a result. Uh, our contra- contraindications, uh, we've got four hours to provide blood components after they're opened. So they must be infused within that time. Uh, if there's a presence of a medical directive or an advanced directive or an alert card expressing they refuse blood under any circumstances, then we won't administer it. If there's a temperature rise to greater than 38 degrees Celsius, this should result in immediate cessation of the transfusion. And we exercise caution in hypothermic patients with a rise of one degree Celsius who have commenced active warming. So we worked once again with our partners in health on the, on the development of both the indications and, and contraindications. Uh, and, and just to reinforce your point before, Casey, you're you spot on, uh, you know, when we look with a, such a large state, there's times when uh, patients move through different health services to get to where they need. But when we sat in the room with stakeholders, I think it was a, a medical officer that, that nailed it. He said, you know, like when we look at all the different journeys these patients are taking, they all ended up in the same place. So how do we make the system better? At what points do we want to provide intervention so that they get there in the best possible way? Uh, and how do we all advocate to, to have the most efficient system so that we've got equity of access? It, it, it really was an enlightening moment when we had all the people in the room and, and focused on the patient and how to make the system better because the, those challenges you talked about before with ambulance separation, we're in the same space, we're, we're a private service, so, so we're not connected to health, we're contracted to health. And our health system ha- has different components and different parts that we, that we all need to work together to keep as linked as possible. 
we can we can leave it at that nice broad overarching statement and not get into the fragmented nature of of healthcare here in the states. That would be a, a weeks long podcast that everybody would probably fall as, fall asleep in the middle of. But we absolutely will have the uh, your protocol linked in the show notes for the listeners. Um, and I'm going to pick at it for just a second because I, I love keeping things simple and saying we're going to give blood to folks that are exsanguinating makes a hundred percent sense to me. But as, as you know, and as I know, sometimes it's not that obvious. Um, and sometimes it can be, you know, questionable whether or not is this patient truly in hemorrhagic shock? Is this a patient that needs blood or not? So do you use vital sign cutoffs? Do you use shock index? Um, do you use, uh, fast or ultrasound at all? Do you have any other more, uh, objective, uh, components to the protocol to try to, to pinpoint, you know, who you're going to administer blood to? Uh, we don't use vital signs, uh, as thresholds per se. So okay. we certainly have, uh, we certainly have measurement of vital signs in particular, temperature, pulse, respirate, blood pressure prior to commencing infusion and, you know, every sort of 10 to 15 afterwards, but, uh, as minimum or maximum thresholds, no, I think, uh, that's not the pathway we went down. We, we, we train our people to be uh, expert independent clinicians in the field. Uh, we're aware that the clinical picture changes from patient to patient uh, and having a reliance on, on numbers, in my opinion, isn't, isn't the, the best way to go. We want to provide scope for people to make good clinical decisions and feel that the best way to help support that is to provide the right training up front and then have a thorough audit case review process afterwards so that peers are learning from each other after each episode uh, and, and grow in, the, in their knowledge together. I love, I love that answer because it, it really takes each, each patient individually and allows you to put all the pieces of the puzzle together and decide whether or not you think the patient is in hemorrhagic shock. So to continue down that question line, when you have undergone that, you know, that, that quality process and looked at those cases individually, you know, approximately how many administrations have y'all completed? Um, what's your patient population look like? Um, and I guess I would add a third to the end of that one and you can take them in any order you want. Have you had adverse events? Have you had patients that received blood that you looked at afterwards and said, Oh no, this patient probably shouldn't have. And how have you dealt with those? So that's probably a three part question. So pick that one apart in any order you want to. <laughs> I'll, I'll do my best. Uh, so, so last financial year, we did a count coming back into coming into this podcast. We had 53 units administered in the field didn't have any adverse outcomes at all last financial year. Uh, and the treatment was predominantly related to high-speed MBAs. Uh, now in saying that, uh, we've got uh, a lot of rural farming communities out there. So on the, on the peripheries of, of the majority of these MBAs, we had some significant accidents that have occurred either related to farm machinery or associated with working in the, in the rural space. So, there have been events where we've seen multiple units of blood given in the field. And in some cases, they've, um, the flight paramedic has been uh, administering that blood in a very small rural hospital 
Uh, and in those cases, there's been some blood stock available there. So I think at, at, uh, there was one case I saw, I think there were seven units of blood administered trying to stabilize this patient before, before bringing them back. So, so far, we've found uh, no adverse events. That includes this calendar, well, this, coming into this financial year as well. But in saying that, all of these cases uh, are reviewed once again by the state trauma director to make sure that there's uh, that we have high confidence in the system. Uh, and, and I think, uh, and to reflect back on your point before around retrospective studies, we're probably in a place now where we really need to drill down and, and do some um, do some research around our journey so far and start to plan for what the future might look like uh, and make sure that we build and, and contribute to the evidence base around pre-hospital care. You've led into one of my later questions, so hold, hold that thought. Um, I want to just give the listeners a little bit of an idea uh, for comparison's sake, though. Just, you know, not a shocker, most commonly, you know, mo- motor vehicle accidents being your number one administration probably is going to hold true really uh, across the globe um, as this uh, technology moves forward and this treatment moves forward. What are your average transport times? So for, for someone that receives blood, you know, how long is it from the scene till they get to the tertiary care center? And uh, this is just so everybody understands the, the vastness of the area that you serve. Mm, good question. And, and there's a lot of variance there because the, the further you move out, from um, the the Perth Centre, the more more handovers and more transfers occur, occur particularly as, as we head into the northwest. You get you're going to see multiple patient transfers either from road through to uh, fixed air wings through to regional resource centre. But uh, to give a picture of if it was say out from Perth into regional areas or into the southwest region where the, there's another hem service operating, we have another hem service operating there, you're probably looking at, at anywhere from anywhere up to four hours, I would say, if you were looking for a single job point to point back to a trauma facility, that's probably round figures some of the times you might be looking at. And, and but saying again that you're looking at significant various just because temporal and spatial uh, reasons sure to the state sure and i i had a i had a, a gut feeling you were going to be in the hours range there if not hours plus so yeah. for for the listeners out there especially the mchd listeners you know I, I get a lot of questions there's you know whole blood in the field is 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 hot here in texas um we have um several services in our immediate area uh, that have been utilizing whole blood. Um, you know, the San Antonio system has uh, been very advanced with, with using whole blood. Uh, and really part of the, the issue from, from my standpoint, speaking as a medical director is there's a big difference in taking whole blood out to a patient who's going to have four hours from the time of patient contact to the time of trauma surgeon contact as compared to our transport times here in Montgomery County, which we're—I wouldn't even call us urban. We're we're uh, you know suburban and probably out in the edges of the county, even um, close to rural. And our longest transport times are in the you know the 40 45 minute range, especially for traumas where we're cutting our scene times. You know we're not we're not waiting around on those. We're still you know respecting the 
respecting the golden hour and and trying to get folks to the to the to the scalpel as quickly as possible imaging all the things that we can do in the in the specialized trauma centers that we can't do in the field um, so that really makes it an apples to oranges comparison from my standpoint uh, for what you guys do at, at st john's to what we're doing here at mchd relative to transport times if i have four hours this makes absolute sense when i have 30 minutes 20 minutes 15 minutes to get to the trauma surgeon then you have to start thinking about how much delay are you going to add in to the transport time and to to, to definitive trauma care uh, with something that's going to be waiting at the ed in the cooler uh, when you arrive in 15 17 you know 25 minutes so th that's where uh, realistically your last comment about prospective work um, you know kind of wrapping up that retrospective sort of descriptive part of this process which is a process of any new treatment and rolling into okay let's give this group whole blood let's give this group standard care and let's see who does better because that's really mm -hmm. the, the, the question the the base question that I have you know as someone who's who's watched this relatively closely because it is a question that I get from my medics uh, very often and uh, I want to, you know, I want to, I want to know the answer to that one. But before we get to the research in, let's let's hit on waste a little bit. And that's, you know, the probably the biggest issue for me. And I really like how you praise, phrased it. It's precious, right? It's a it's a it's a precious mm -hmm. resource. So how do you all rotate, exchange, or supply to prevent waste? And again, you know, have you had any administrations that, when you look back at from a, a trauma review standpoint, that medical direction or, or, you know, peer review or whoever it is that, that puts the final stamp on it. If you had an administration where they said, you know what, that patient probably wasn't in shock. And how did you, how did you remediate that? Or have you tweaked the protocol yeah. at all to try to make it more precise? So good question. So to, to answer the, I guess the, the wastage part first, the, the support through the, with the organization here is called Pathwest their governance arrangements and guidance into the organization on best practice has really been invaluable. Uh, there's data loggers uh, to monitor temperature uh, and any possible temperature excursions that stay with the, the red blood since from point of, of receival. Uh, we have fridges with monitoring capability at the HEM sites to, to keep to store the blood. Uh, and if there's any um, temperature excursions or queries, then, then Pathwest work quickly with us to either identify them if, if that's occurring or to ask questions about it. And there's always follow-up to make sure that uh, we understand which patients receive, receive blood. So we, we feel very uh, confident and supported by, by that system at the moment. I think there's... Um, like anything, there's room for improvement, and I'm looking at some systems that some uh, uh, other services have interstate uh, that automate a lot of the the I guess the view of the auditing process, the fridge cleaning process, the data log. You try to wrap up all of those data points in the cold chain so that we can produce better reports uh, and see through the system on a more frequent basis because it's quite manual at the moment. That's that's a, a thing for us to work on into the future, and I'm pretty passionate about. In terms of 
looking through each of those cases and whether or not we've had incidents of uh, usage where we think it might not have been required. I can honestly say that we, we don't tend to have those because the, the rationalisation not only of the administration of blood but of the tasking of HEMS is for time-critical jobs. So if, if they arrive at scene, it's usually because that, that case has had some mission control oversight to identify it's the right case to be tasked to. And then when our, our staff arrive on scene, they're, they're well-experienced clinicians in identifying who's most appropriate to be re receiving that, that type of interve intervention. And they're well aware of the risks associated with administration of um, whole blood. So, but to come back, I guess, to, to indications, realistically, if, if the bleeding is an obvious cause and, and it's not fully controlled and, and we have evidence of inadequate autumn organ perfusion, then that's the best indicator that I can think of as blood as being a first line agent, as opposed to a crystalloid solution, which really will just dilute clotting factors and, and platelets. So in the setting where, yeah, where we've got a patient that's hypovolemic because of exannuation, it's the perfect time to administer blood uh, and, and preserve function and get the patient back to where they, they can address the cause through surgical intervention. That's that's kind of the space where we're in at the moment. We've got, um, I guess, a, a select patient group that our clinicians uh, are getting very good at identifying and addressing. So uh, that's not to say we, we slacken off at all on our quality systems. I think, if anything, we just need to keep that focus and lens to make sure that that uh, we're always doing the best that we can and we, and we keep that standard up to, to where it is at the moment and maintain it there. You hit some good, good points in there. I want to, I want to reiterate on a couple of those. And I assume uh, the program you described is, is path West is, is a, a similar program to a blood bank type program that we have here in the States. And that partnership is going to be key for anyone in the States that, that, decides to pursue this or is already pursuing it, that partnership with, you know, the, the blood management agencies uh, really has to be open, you know, two-way, constant communication uh, to try to prevent that waste. So that, that's key for, for any listeners out there that are, that are considering this. And if you're listening to this, you, you know that already. Um, and secondly, you know, the education and the, and the proper dispatch, you know, uh, kind of built into the hem service portion of it, right? I, I, I get what you're saying. If we've sent a helicopter to a patient, they've already passed through several checkpoints that, hey, they're pretty sick, right? Or we wouldn't be sending a helicopter. And then we've got our most educated uh, clinicians, our most experienced clinicians making the decision on is there tissue perfusion or not. So that's where the education piece comes in before any new protocol rollout, right? As a medical director, if you're going to uh, decide to add any treatment to the list of available treatments, you, you got to educate on it first and you got to make sure that the medics understand the pathophysiology and make sure that, you know, the anatomy and the indications and the contraindications and all those things. So, you know, where you've self-selected your, your strongest clinicians obviously lends to success with the program. So uh, kudos to all those all those things because they come off the tongue very smoothly and easily, uh, but the actual implementation and nuts and bolts of those 
pieces of that project I know took a lot of time and a lot of forethought. Uh, otherwise, you would have had inappropriate administrations and adverse events and mistakes and waste and the fact that you've not had those and that you're looking at it with good insight and good introspection. Uh, that's that's the way any protocol like this should be run. So, uh, again, uh, kudos for that and the way that y'all have managed it because that's it's, it's easy to roll a protocol out. It's hard to actually complete the loop and and do the necessary work looking at it with true introspection and saying, are we doing this right? Are we making mistakes? And how can we improve on it? So I'll let the how can we improve on it sort of wrap us up and, and toss this back to you. You know, where do you see it going in the future, your whole blood program? And I guess just a little specific question before we wrap up, are you all giving it to any non-trauma patients at this point? Or do you think that's a, a potential road that you could go down in the future? Uh yeah, good question. Uh, uh, we haven't looked at, at uh, providing it to non-trauma patients uh, at this point in time. Um, I think, um, or I guess to, to sum up a, a little bit of what you were saying before, it's that risk-benefit analysis around any intervention when you're rolling out. And, and you're right, it is easy to talk about it and say, yeah, we're doing this, we're doing that, we're, we're happy with it. There's nothing easy about any of it, and it always requires constant attention. And it's almost like a a, a little bit of anxiety that hang, hangs over you that says, "Okay, are we really doing it right? Is there something I've missed here? Do we let's go back over this data again, or let's have a look at this case in a bit more detail?" There's it, having that. Uh, well, maybe part of that's a good thing too because it, it keeps you sharp and keeps you looking for those things. Absolutely. I agree 100%. If you don't have that anxiety over a protocol of this nature and you're not anxious each time you pull up those charts, I think you're in the wrong business. I think that's the way we all should be. It should not be cavalier. Again, especially with a precious resource like this, I don't mean to interrupt you there, but I feel like that is the absolute appropriate response. And that's the way I would feel. I will feel at some point when when, whenever I roll this out in a, in a service that I'm, I'm working with or I'm a part of that rollout, uh, if you're just shuffling the charts and not looking and it, you know, if that administration's at two in the morning on a Saturday night and I get an alert on my phone, I'm gonna be nervous until I get the chart in my hands and see it. That's just, I think that's appropriate. So anyways, can, I'm sorry for interrupting, but I thought that was a really uh, a super valid point. No, not at all. I think uh, in terms of opportunities for improvement, um, I think uh, always looking for, for ways to have increased confidence and visibility of the logistics around movement of blood. I think that's, uh, that's in, it's important. So having uh, that, that quality system approach so that you know you're always doing the right thing and the best you can around, around the product. Uh, I know our, our medical director is examining potentially the use of fibrinogen uh, into the future. So there's a lot of work to be done, I think, uh, in the lead up to that. But but it's exciting that the the headspace is in that place, and I guess it's reflective, reflect reflects well on the clinicians that that she's considering that and wants to explore that further. So so that that's there's some work to be done there. I think perhaps. We can improve some of our, our, and you mentioned it before around vital signs, but I think maybe we should also be considering uh, introduction of uh, products like the iStat or 
so that we're measuring hemoglobin out in the field. It might not add much, but it might sort of help again with that quality process, provided it's not uh, extending scene times. Uh, yeah, I, I think um, just taking the system or this slice of the patient's journey, uh, seeing, examining point by point what we do in terms of care interventions or, uh, and seeing how each part could possibly be improved, it sort of increases the, the in sum of improvement, I guess is a, a poor way to describe it overall. But yeah, it's, it's really trying to step back, have a look at what that journey looks like and then taking the individual components and seeing how each of them can be strengthened. And, and like I said before, you know, we, we've got uh, to take up the, the research mantle a little bit. Uh, Pre-hospital care is, is a global discipline. You know, we should all be contributing to that evidence base and, and, and sharing knowledge to, to help all of the patients we're serving. I couldn't agree more, Joe. And it's a great spot to wrap us up. Thanks, thanks for joining us from literally across the globe. And I would be remiss if I didn't say, you know, we talked a lot about the size of the, the landmass uh, that St. John serves. It is the largest landmass of any EMS service worldwide. So makes sense that you're on the forefront of whole blood administration. And uh, I know I appreciate and our listeners appreciate you taking time and, and sharing that with us. Uh, the idea of fibrinogen, uh, potentially you know, non-traumatic patients, uh, lots of lots of interesting ways this could go in the future. We'll be definitely on the lookout for any of your any of your research, um, you know, output. And if you ever have topics or protocols or developments that you want to share with us further, you've got a you've got an open spot here on the MCHC Paramedic Podcast. We really appreciate again your willingness to share your protocol with us and your experiences. And these are valuable lessons for us to learn as as we're considering protocols such as this in different size services, different transport time services. And it really is, maybe we're comparing apples to oranges, but you know, we still have to uh, learn lessons from each other and, and try to figure out where those differences may apply and how we, how we account for those. And so uh, these kind of, you know, to go back to where you started, these open conversations really around the globe in, in EMS and in pre-hospital care are beyond useful from my standpoint as a medical director interesting and enjoyable. And again, thanks for joining us. For all the listeners out there, if you have questions, concerns about the podcast, ideas for new episodes, please shoot us an email, podcast at mchd-tx.org. As always, leave us a like or a review wherever you listen to your podcast. Helps get us out there more visible. We really appreciate it more than you know. As always, thanks for joining us, and we'll talk to everybody again soon. This podcast was brought to you by the Montgomery County Hospital District, Texas. Production and editing by Andrew Adams. Questions or comments, which are always welcome, can be sent to podcast at mchd-tx.org. Make sure to subscribe above to keep updated to all our future casts. Music, copyright, Kevin McLeod, and Competech.com. Licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0.